0: Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Lamentations. Lamentations. Lamentations is that little book between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If you find Isaiah, next is Jeremiah. If you hit Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Lamentations. We're going to look at Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 22 to 25, but for context, I'm going to read verses 19 to 33, Lamentations chapter 3. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease, indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, Then he will show compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Jeremiah Jeremiah wrote these words in 586 B.C. as the smoke rose from Jerusalem. The city had just been destroyed after Babylon had sieged it for two years, The people must have stored up a lot of food to last two years or anywhere near that much, but it really didn't last that long. Before the siege ended and after the food ran out, many people died of starvation. And those who lived, lived because they cannibalized the dead. Finally, after two years, the Babylonians broke through the wall ready to fight what they found was starved bodies strewn in the streets, and those who were left alive had no strength or desire to fight. King Zedekiah managed to escape through a tunnel with his sons and the few remaining soldiers, but they were quickly caught and put to death, all except for King Zedekiah, who, was, who had his eyes put out, and then he was carted off to Babylon. You can read all of this in 2 Kings chapter 25. Verse 9 of that chapter says, The Babylonians burned the house of, the, of Yahweh, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house they burned with fire. It goes on to say how they took whatever was remaining of value which had been left over after previous conquerings, they, what was left they took back to Babylon. Everything that defined the nation of Israel was obliterated. They were no longer a sovereign nation. Their king was captured and exiled, their population decimated, their capital city burned, their center of worship, the glorious Temple of Solomon, destroyed, their unparalleled wealth stolen. Israel was bereft of its king, its temple, its priesthood, its leaders, its cities, and its land. The kingdom of Judah was no more, and the people were all but annihilated. Israel, the people that God had chosen, the people that God was going to use to bless the world, was utterly vanquished. The book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's extended lament as he saw these witnesses Take place, or these events take place. The question that naturally arises in a time like this, is, where's God? Where are God's promises being fulfilled when his people are destroyed? Where is his faithfulness to bless this people and use them as the blessing when they are being put to death and carted off to a foreign land? How is God involved? Well, the short answer is that the complete destruction of the nation of Israel, save for a few people, is the faithfulness of God on display. Nearly a thousand years earlier, Joshua warned the people of Israel, saying, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. That was just a reminder of what the Lord had told them years before through Moses. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but if you read Deuteronomy 28, you'll find that everything that Jerusalem experienced, down to men eating their children and women eating their babies that were just birthed, is described in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 includes, in beautiful description, the blessings of, That the Lord would give to this people if they would follow Him and worship Him and obey Him. And it describes in horrific detail the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed the Lord and served other gods. Tragically, Israel turned their back on the Lord again and again and again and again. God was patient with them, wasn't he, during the 355 years during the period of the judges. God was patient as well through the 345 years that Judah lasted in the land. But the time came when God fulfilled his promise and he poured his wrath down. Jeremiah understood this and he even wrote in chapter one, verse five, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. But he also knew God's character. And he also knew other promises that God had made. And so he could hope. He knew what one author wrote. Wrath is a true word, a right word, and sometimes an inevitable word. But God would not have it be his last word. That honor is reserved for his unfailing love. Unquote. Jeremiah had hope in God even though his whole world was crumbling and burning in front of him. Last week we saw how to pray when all seems lost. And we learned that in addition to lamenting, pouring out your heart before the Lord, And bringing your requests, your supplications to the Lord, you ought also to trust, affirm your trust in the Lord. Well, today I want to spend our time together learning from this weeping prophet how we can trust in the Lord, why we can hope in the Lord when all seems lost. Jeremiah reminds us of five attributes of God that enable us to hope when all is lost. And we see these in verses 22 to 25. The first one is loving kindness. God's loving kindness never ceases. You see it there in verse 22. Look at it. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Loving kindness, again, is the Hebrew word hesed. H-E-S-E-D. This is not an easy word to translate because it encompasses a variety of different ideas including steadfastness and love, loyalty, kindness, mercy, and and other ideas. One word doesn't suffice, so translators have come up with compound words like steadfast love or faithful love or as the NAS has it here, loving kindness. Of course, we read that in Psalm 136. When Moses asked to see God's glory... He wanted to know what God is really like. God responded by defining his character to Moses. Here's what he says in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgive iniquity, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is God's self-identity. You want to know what I'm like? I am abounding in loving kindness. Last week I gave you this definition. It is God's eternal, unilateral commitment for the good of His people. God's eternal, unilateral commitment for the good of His people. God's loving kindness is often seen in direct contrast to His wrath. We we understand that all humanity deserves God's wrath. There's not a soul on the planet today that deserves anything less than the wrath of God. And God is more than willing to put his wrath on display. In fact, he intends to put his wrath on display, even as he did here in Jerusalem. But in his loving kindness, God chooses a people whom he would say, you are mine. And he chooses to save them from even his own wrath. God's loving kindness is what prevents God's wrath from winning the day. Isaiah 54, 8, Lord says, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In Micah chapter 7, verse 8, the prophet proclaims, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the religious the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not not retain his anger forever because he delights in his unchanging love, as it's translated there. God's loving kindness is more than just a commitment. It is a commitment with a purpose. And that purpose is the salvation of his people. The nature of God's loving kindness is that It doesn't cease. It certainly did not end here at the destruction of Jerusalem. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Ezra and Nehemiah and other prophets. Nor did it end when Israel rejected Jesus. Otherwise, Peter would not have been named the apostle to the Jews. And Paul would not have said that the gospel is for the Jews first. And it certainly hasn't ended today. For Paul says in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people, has he? Answer being no. And he goes on to show in Romans 11 that God will restore Israel unto himself when the fullness of the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom. So even though historically in 586 Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were decimated, God's loving kindness still never ceases. But God's loving kindness doesn't just apply to Israel. There's no one word in the New Testament that is a direct correlation to chesed or loving kindness. Perhaps you could combine the words agape, God's perfect divine love, and charis, God's grace. In our lives, God's loving kindness is demonstrated most supremely in the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There you have the love and the grace and the kindness and mercy of God all put together. The gospel is the loving kindness of God on display When Paul wrote to Timothy, he was reflecting back on his life before Christ saved him and how he violently tried to persecute the church, trying to stamp out the name of Jesus from the earth. Yet, he says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Again, mercy Love, grace. The same is true for you and me and anyone else who has been saved by Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world and his grace and love are abundantly and unceasingly manifested in our lives. The work he began in you, he will complete it. It will never end. You can hope in God because his loving kindnesses never cease. Secondly, God's compassion never ends. Look again at verse 22. Second line says, for his compassions never fail. Some translations here use the word mercy. The NAS translates it, compassions in the plural, The word in Hebrew is plural, but it really shouldn't be translated that way. When it's in the singular, when the noun is singular, the the word refers to a woman's womb, that place where she develops an emotional bond with the child growing within her. When used in the plural, it becomes more of a figurative term to refer to that emotional connection that you might have with another person. Whenever, you remember when Joseph was in Egypt and his brothers came a second time with Benjamin, it says that Joseph saw Benjamin and he hurried out, for his compassion grew warm within him for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. In other words, God's disposition towards his people is not stone-faced and arbitrary, God shows mercy because he feels compassion. God has a warm affection for his people. Some 200 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, the people looked back at this destruction and said, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. They could see the compassion of God even on display in the fact that God did not fully destroy his people. They also understood, as they say elsewhere, that God's compassion is what motivated his presence with them in the wilderness, his salvation in the time of the judges, and his rescuing them of their, from their oppressors. God is compassionate. Do you think of God that way? Do you think of God as stoic and unemotional towards you? Maybe he's just ready to strike any moment you mess up? Well, you shouldn't think of him that way because God is compassionate. God's eternal, unilateral commitment for the good of his people is in part motivated by the affection that he feels for his people. His sincere care and concern never ends We see this on on display in the New Testament. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says about Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. When he encountered two blind men, it says, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and they immediately regained their sight and followed him. Jesus was no less compassionate towards those people then, as he is towards you today. You can hope in God because his compassion never, never ends. Third, God's faithfulness never expires. You see this in verse 23. They are new every morning. We'll come back to that. Then he says, great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness is a good translation here. You could also say steadfastness or trustworthiness. The Lord is a shield that you can stand behind with confidence. He is a fortress that you can stand within knowing that it will take the onslaught of the enemy. The Lord is a rock that you can build your life on. He is trustworthy. He will never fail. Nothing will ever get through him. God's faithfulness, his compassion, and his loving kindness are are really all intertwined. And wherever you find one in Scripture, you're likely to find one or the the other two in various combinations. Let me just give you a, a couple examples. Psalm 40, verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth, which could also be translated faithfulness, will continually preserve me. Or consider Psalm 36, verse 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And His faithfulness to all generations. How about Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. But my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken says the lord who has compassion on you god is compassionate and he has an eternal commitment for the good of his people and he is faithful to that commitment now look at the text again the author tells us really two key truths of these attributes of god look at verse 22 again it says the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. God's faithfulness, his loving kindnesses, and his compassions never end. His faithfulness is not like a cloud that drops a massive amount of water, but then is emptied and moves on. God's loving kindness is not like soil that produces fruit year after year but has to be rested or else you're going to ruin it. His compassion is not like a tank that needs to be filled up again and again lest his salvation come to a grinding halt. Now, God's faithfulness, his loving kindness and his compassion are like the oceans from which the clouds can draw billions of gallons of water and not even begin to drain them dry. Well, the second truth, not only do they never end, but the second truth is that there is no. <clears throat> they are new every morning. Look at it again there in verse 23. They are new every morning. Isn't biblical interpretation easy? <laughs> they are like the manna that Israel ate in the wilderness. God provided each and every day food for over a million people. And each and every day, that manna was as fresh as the day before. And on day 14,001 of their 40-year journey, it was still as fresh and moist as it was on day one. God never provided stale manna, and neither does his faithfulness, loving kindness, and compassion get old and tired. Think about this. Depending on where we find it in scripture, God's promises are anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 years old. But it's not as though God has to remember way back then, oh yeah, I made that promise. I I gotta stick to that one. Oh, Oh yeah, I made that one too. I gotta stick to that one. No, God makes his promises day after day after day after day. They are new every morning. His care and concern for you is no less real and effective today than it was five years ago or 50 years ago. And because of that, you can believe wholeheartedly that what he says, he will do. You can respond to life's twists and turns knowing that God is faithful. You can grieve losses And tragedies, trusting that God is compassionate. You can spend yourself in prayer knowing that God is full of loving kindness and He will remain faithful to His promises. So hope in God. Hope in God. Don't hope in people who will fail and leave you disappointed. Don't hope in circumstances that are constantly changing for the better or for the worse. Certainly, don't hope in possessions that fail and fade and break and are destroyed. In fact, that's our fourth point God's sufficiency never fades. So, God's loving kindness never ceases, His compassions never end. His faithfulness endures forever, and his sufficiency never fades. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. Each tribe in Israel was given a portion of the land that they were to divide among the families as their inheritance. Each family was given a a plot of land, and that plot was to be their Portion or possession throughout all their generations. It was supposed to be handed down from one generation to another. So, figuratively speaking, if you had a Jewish birth certificate, you essentially had a title deed to a land. But here, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion. He means that despite the loss of all of his earthly possessions, including his land, the Lord is his inheritance. The Lord is the only thing that he needs. As long as I have you, Jeremiah says, I have hope. In the words of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And then later, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. This is what I mean by God's sufficiency. He is sufficient for us. If you're familiar with psychology, you've probably heard of Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. The idea simply that humans have certain fundamental basic needs that they need in order to be fulfilled, to reach their potential. Of course, other psychologists have come along and modified his theory and whatnot, but generally the basic concept of fundamental needs continues on. Christians have come along and tried to sanctify these theories and discovered supposed needs in the Bible, like love, respect, love languages, and so on. They arrive at these needs by taking certain commands that I'm supposed to love you and turn it into a fundamental need that you need to be loved. What that does is not only twist the Scripture, but much worse, it conveys the idea that God is not enough. It conveys the idea that in order for me to experience everything that God has for me, I need something from my spouse or from another person that God can't provide. Well, here's the truth of the matter. If you need something other than God to be happy, if you need something other than God to live righteously, if you need something other than God to be at peace, you've made an idol out of whatever it is you think you need, whether it's your career, your family, your relationships, your wealth, whatever it is, it has become an idol. In other words, you've assigned a place and a power to that person or thing that only God should occupy. The truth is, you don't need anything apart from God. Psalm 73 verse 26 says it best, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." This reality is made crystal clear when Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. You must be willing to give up everything to follow Christ. You have to be willing to lose your spouse, to lose your parents, to lose your children, your home, your possessions, your career, even your own life for the sake of following Christ. Is this not what Jesus means when he spoke to the woman at the well in John 4? He said, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. May I ask which which well you're drinking from? Are you drinking from a broken cistern that can never satisfy, that can never fulfill your longings? When God is your possession, when he alone satisfies, fulfills, and delights you, you can lose your retirement. You can lose your car or your home. You can lose your friends or your family. You can even lose your dignity, your ability to to walk and talk. You can lose your ability to hold a spoon. You can lose your eyesight. You can even lose your own life. And you would still be rich and happy because you still have God and he will never let you go. Everything, everything in this world will fade and die. Only God has supreme and lasting value. Only God has the ability to satisfy your thirst and hunger. Therefore, if we hope in anything other than God, we will be disappointed. But if you hope in God, you will be satisfied and you will never be disappointed. Finally, God's goodness never fails. His sufficiency never fades and his goodness never fails. Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. What is good? That which is good is right and appropriate for the purpose or situation. That which is good is right and appropriate for the purpose or situation. In Genesis 1, when it repeatedly says that God saw what he had made and behold, it was good. What it means, at least at a minimum, is that each element of creation functioned rightly and appropriately. Unlike the evolutionary worldview that requires that there be endless flaws and endless failures before, by chance, something works right, God started everything from the beginning with the right parts to function the right way to accomplish the right purposes. It was very good. Evil is that which breaks, twists, and distorts. God always does what is good. Satan always does what is evil. What God created as very good, Satan and man collude to make evil. But the remarkable thing is that God is so powerful that he can take that which is evil and make it good. Isn't that right? Well, that's actually not entirely accurate. You see, God does not turn evil into good. God is not reactionary. The evil that men and Satan do, God intends for good. Is this not what Joseph said to his brothers? As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, in his infinite wisdom, and it does require infinite wisdom, to fulfill his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in the land not their own for 400 years, God planned for Joseph to be sold into slavery by his brothers, to be taken to Egypt to go through a complex and unjust set of circumstances and somehow become second in command in Egypt in such a way that not only would his own family be preserved through the famine, but eventually they would become slaves and want to leave the land. Or consider the death of Jesus. The believers in Acts 4 said this in one of their corporate prayers, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. With both Joseph and Jesus, Jesus God did not have to call upon plan B. No, the evil intentions of wicked men were his plan A to accomplish good. In the first case, that good was saving a Jacob's family from starvation and ultimately the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. In the second case, that good is the eternal salvation of his people while at the same time satisfying the just wrath of God. Well, in both cases, the people of God had to wait For those good purposes to be accomplished. Joseph had to suffer many injustices while God's good plan unfolded. Israel had to suffer many years under bondage before Moses came and delivered them. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. Simeon and Anna were praising the Lord because they were the last in a long line of people who had been waiting for the Messiah. And for the last 2,000 years, we've been waiting for the Lord's return. In the moment of history that Jeremiah is writing here in Lamentations, Jeremiah saw nothing but devastation. God's good purposes seemed to be nowhere in sight. And yet his hope in God remained because the Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him is this not the promise of Romans 8:28 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God this truth can only be claimed by believers. For us, everything does work out in the end because Christ has conquered death. He's guaranteed our eternity before him. So everything that happens in, li- in this life results ultimately in our eternal salvation. Before the unbeliever, everything will end up in death, condemnation, and eternal separation from Christ. Friend, if you are here and you do not know Christ, you have no hope. Whatever troubles you may face in this life have no good purpose and you will end up in hell. This will be your best life now. But if you would turn to Christ... Even today, if you would repent of your sins and believe on him who died on the cross for sinners, who rose again and ascended into heaven is sitting at the right hand of the Father, proclaiming salvation to you, even this morning, if you would believe on him, his promises for good would apply to you now. You can hope if you trust in Christ. Well, as we close... Are you suffering? Is your life full of pain and destruction and misery? Hope in God. Do you know someone who is suffering? Help them to hope in this God whose loving kindnesses never cease, whose compassion never ends, whose faithfulness never expires, whose sufficiency never fades and whose goodness never fails. Let's pray, and then we'll hear from our brother Paul. Our Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. There is no one who has loved us like you have loved us. And even though we may struggle with all kinds of trials in our lives, help us to know you to trust you, and to hope in you. For your glory's sake, amen.